Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Uh, I think that was, I'm going to ride to the city tomorrow. I hope it was. Did you recognize that language? When I first heard it, I thought I did. It sounded a bit like Arabic. It had the ch sounds, and I was like, is it Mongolian? Now, I want you to listen to this next language. Well, uh, this is a famous one. Zaldriz es buzdarik sozdaor. And that is, a uh, dragon is not a slave. Give up? That language is High Valyrian. And the first clip was of Dothraki. It is known. David J. Peterson, the voice you heard at the top of the show, created both of these languages for HBO's Game of Thrones. His full-time job is to make constructed languages, or conlangs as those in the know call them. He's made conlangs for worlds like Thor, Dune, and The Witcher. But this level of success didn't come easy. The first language was, was really, really poor quality. It was the year 2000, and David was a sophomore at UC Berkeley. He was taking several language courses at the time, including Esperanto. Esperanto is the world's most widely spoken constructed language. Invented in 19th century Austria, it was intended to be a universal language that could bring the world together. And while David was sitting in a lecture one day, he thought, maybe I could do that. Unlike Esperanto, though, his motivation was young love. I was going to create a language that uh, my girlfriend at the time and I could speak. And so I named it after both of our names. I'm David, and she was Megan, and so it was called Meg Davy. <laughs> and uh, it was just terrible. I, I think I, I, I gave it to her as a Christmas present. <laughs> Sorry. It's like when Homer, when Mar, yeah, when Homer gives Marge a bowling ball with the name Homer on it. Basically, what that was. <laughs> Do you remember any of Meg Davy? Do you, can you can you? As you can see, David is haunted by his first conlang. I set myself completely contradictory goals. So, for example, I wanted it to be easy for me to learn and use, but I also wanted it to be linguistically interesting, and I also wanted it to be regular, and I also wanted it to be highly artistic. It was just it was just a Franken beast and it didn't have any place on this earth. And just as they did with Frankenstein's monster, humans rejected Meg Divi. This maybe will give you a glimpse into my character at that time and probably in general. I assumed that since I was doing it, everybody would think it was a great idea and they'd all want to jump on board. Um, <laughs> I was just shocked when that wasn't the case. And so, Megdevi went from one speaker to none. We are doing something different this week and next on Radio Lingo, a two-part series on the life cycle of languages. This episode tells the story of three new languages and how they exemplify three ways new languages are born. They're invented, like with Dothraki, or they emerge with the formation of a new community. That's what happened with Nicaraguan Sign Language. And then the most common way, an existing language gradually experiences incremental changes 
until it resembles something completely new, which is what happened with a language called Light Walpuri in Australia. From Crooked Media and Duolingo, I'm Amadal Yakbar, and this is Radiolingo. Welcome to part one of our language lifecycle series. Congrats, it's a language. So we're going to be talking about two different categories of languages in this episode. Natural languages, languages that have evolved and been used by people for generations, and conlangs, languages invented by people like David. One of the biggest differences between the two is the level of conscious planning involved in the language. With natural languages, generally... Nobody is there making, you know, overt decisions. And often if they try to make overt decisions, they fail. Whereas with conlangs... There is one or more people who are definitely at the helm and are making active decisions. Learning about David's process of creating new conlangs can be helpful in understanding how natural languages develop too. Because David has a method to mimic the natural process. He starts with the big picture. Every natural language has a context, a historical context, a social context, a cultural context, etc. These all influence how a given language evolves. So with a new conlang, David first looks at the fictional universe. What does the culture of the people who will be speaking the invented language look like? The producers come to us, right, and say, we have these people, they're going to be speaking a language, and at that point, what I want is I want to get as much information as possible. Who are these people that are speaking the language? What are their circumstances? That is, where do they live? You know, what is their history? Who do they interact with? How much? Basically, all of the stuff that the writers come up with for these people and their history, every little bit is useful. Step two, he presents the producers with a system of fresh sounds. Creating a sound system is a part of creating a language, but it doesn't take a long time. You can do it in a, in a day or two. Uh, and that's all of the sounds that are spoken in the language and then how they pattern together. How they are put together to form syllables and how the syllables are put together to form words. Step three, evolution. As we're discussing throughout the series, language is constantly changing. In real life, it's messy. People continue to innovate new words, new grammar systems, new pronunciations. Some of it sticks, some of it doesn't. In the case of David's conlangs, the evolution happens with producer feedback. They take a listen and they say, all right, this either this sounds exactly like we were hoping for or this sound here is, is kind of bumping for us. Can you change it? Can you change this? I can make it prettier, make it rougher and so on. I take whatever feedback they give me, retool it, do it again, basically keep doing it until we get it right, until we have exactly the sound that they're looking for. Once the producers are happy, in comes step four. So then we set about creating the grammar. Okay, so how does this all come together? Let's take an example from Dothraki. The Dothraki people are nomadic warriors, and horses are integral to their way of life. As such, David wanted aspects of this to influence their language's grammar. So the Dothralat used the word ride as an expression of immediate future and immediate past. I had David record what it sounds like, so you don't have to listen to me butcher the language. I ate. I just ate. Literally, I ride from eating. I will eat. I am about to eat. Literally, I ride to eating. The word ride also features in the greeting, how are you doing, which comes out as... How are you doing? Literally, do you ride well? Meaning, like, what's up? 
It's not the real thing, but the work David did to integrate culture and language. It makes Dothraki feel more real, right? But that's a constructed language. How are natural languages born? New natural languages are often born when a new community forms. For example, if people have had to migrate somewhere new. Or when a group of people who come together share no common language. A need for communication and lacking a common language is actually very typical for one group in particular, deaf people. I would say at least 90% of deaf children are born to parents who are hearing that don't know sign language. This is Professor Lena Hu. She's an assistant professor at UC Santa Barbara's Department of Linguistics. Lena is deaf and speaks American Sign Language, so the voice you'll hear interpreting for her is Mala Po. When I show up in class the first day, I often tell the students that they have a professor who is signing and Mala is interpreting what they're saying. So what students hear is me, not Mala. It's kind of interesting. And then after a while, they'll kind of forget that the interpreters are there. As Lena mentioned earlier, most deaf children are born to non-signing parents. Often, this will result in a child communicating in what is called home sign. The term refers to those deaf children who make up their own signs to communicate with their family members because they don't have access to the language. There are a lot of different circumstances under which home signs are formed within a family. And a lot of this depends on where you're located. For example, the reasons for the development of a home sign in America is different than in other places. Home sign for deaf people in the United States is intentionally when people deprive them of learning an actual language that has been established. This is because there's an established sign language in the U.S. that people can learn, American Sign Language. But what about in places where no organized sign language exists? Or places that don't quite have the resources to introduce an established sign language to its deaf community? In a rural, indigenous community in the southern part of Mexico, for example, where you have deaf children, and those children are not deprived of sign language. They just don't know any conventional sign language in the area. They don't have resources. They don't have access to another sign language near them. They don't have a deaf school. Uh, There is no one to learn from, and there is no access to any conventional sign language. So the children develop their own home sign to communicate. This was the case, initially at least, with signers of our next language, Nicaraguan Sign Language. Nicaraguan Sign Language, or NSL, is relatively new, only a few decades old. My best guess and my colleague's best guess is that today there's probably around 1,500 people who sign Nicaraguan Sign Language who learned it in early childhood. I think now the oldest signers are, given they came into the school at like five or six, they're in their 50s. This is Molly Flaherty. She's an assistant professor of psychology at Davidson College. I do work that's a little bit different from what people typically expect from a developmental psychologist, which is, number one, I mostly work with adults, and number two, I mostly study the structure of language. And the reason I study the structure of language with adults is that I think that it is possible to see the evidence of the way that those adults were thinking and learning as children by looking at the way that they use language today. 
For a developmental psychologist like Molly, Nicaraguan Sign Language is an incredible opportunity to see how language changes rapidly over generations of signers. All those questions David was asking, the cultural context, the needs of the community that caused the language to evolve, you can observe a lot of that history in the small NSL community, partly because of how new the language is. So how did NSL come to be? As Lena mentioned, many deaf children who aren't taught an established sign language develop a home sign. But home signs tend not to have consistent grammar and complete vocabularies, at least not in the same sense that widely used sign languages do. In order to develop some consistency, you need a location where the deaf community can sign together. And so in Nicaragua, there just was no place like that before the 1970s. There was no place where deaf individuals came together in a community setting, in a school setting, and anything like that for an extended period of time. And this issue often results in the delay of learning a language fluently. Dr. Lena Hu says that this is a challenge many deaf children face compared to their hearing counterparts. And the results of delaying the acquisition of a first language can be huge. You need that foundation to be able to socialize with people based on what is considered appropriate behavior. To learn to uh, communicate with people on different topics. In general, the later you learn ASL, or the first language, I should say, the harder it will to, quote-unquote, catch up with the deaf who learned it earlier in life. And this was the case in Nicaragua until the 1970s, when the first schools for special education began to open their doors. So kids from around Managua, from around the capital, and to some degree from other places too, came together in the school. And, you know, they got there, and it's not like there was a language for them to learn already. It's not like somebody also brought in a sign language. When they arrived, the only language each student knew was whatever home sign they had taught themselves. And when the teachers attempted to introduce them to a language, they prioritized a spoken one. They were trying to get these kids to speak Spanish and to write Spanish, which didn't work very well. Not because the kids didn't want to learn or communicate, but because the teachers were not trained to build on what the kids already knew and would be most useful to them, signing. But luckily, they didn't prevent the kids from communicating with each other however they wanted to. And since they're deaf kids, the way that they communicated with each other was using their hands. And it didn't take long before teachers at the school reported that they didn't know what the heck the kids were saying to each other. A need to communicate leads to creation, a new language. So this was the very beginning of the sign language. And then these initial kids who were in the school stayed in that school, right? They didn't just come together one time for a week or a month or even a year. They stayed in that school for multiple years. They went up through the grades and new kids came in every year. New, younger children came in who were then able to learn this language from their older signing peers. So they still weren't learning it in the classroom. It still definitely wasn't any kind of explicit teaching. But there was a language there once they reached the school, once these younger kids reached the school. Over time, the kids at the small school created an entirely new language that could be taught and passed down. It came to be known as Nicaraguan Sign Language, and it's now the sign language of all deaf communities there. Our next language is our last, and it's a demonstration of the most common way that new languages emerge. We'll get to all of that after the break. Most new languages are built off of existing language systems. They're combinations or remixes or descendants or variations of older languages. 
Like a brand new language spoken in an indigenous community in Australia, some people say it's the newest language in the world, light Walpuri. So remember how I said new languages are often formed by a cultural change or a combination of two languages? In this case, light Walpuri is a language all on its own and has built on elements of English, Australian Creole, and Walpuri. I know, light Walpuri is different from Walpuri. To help avoid confusion, when we say Walpuri or strong Walpuri, we're referring to the indigenous language of the Walpuri people. Light Walpuri is the new language. Strong Walpuri is spoken by about two to 3,000 people, but once was spoken by many more indigenous people in Australia. Since the introduction of English through the colonization of Australia, there have been fewer and fewer speakers of Walpuri. And recently, this interaction between Walpuri and English resulted in the birth of Light Walpuri. The Light Walpuri speakers, they grow up speaking Light Walpuri as their main language. They also learn Walpuri, and they also learn English at school. This is Carmel O'Shaughnessy. She's an Australian linguist who first documented Light Walpuri for people outside the Walpuri community in Lajamanu. She spent years working with Indigenous communities in the Northern Territories of Australia, including an Australian Creole-speaking community. And then I moved over to Lajamanu community, where I'm speaking to you from now, and was working there supporting the Walpuri teachers to teach Walpuri in their Walpuri English bilingual education program. It quickly became clear to her that Lajamanu was a special place. What I learned was this incredibly culturally and linguistically rich place where people were very active and enthusiastic about making sure that the next generations learned Walpuri culture and language. The elders always say that learning Walpuri language and culture and English language and culture are really important. Lajamanu is remote and small. Only about 600 people live there. It's about 600 kilometres from the nearest town. So it's, it's, not, it's not an easy place to get to, Lajamanu. When Carmel arrived in Lajamanu as a teacher in the late 90s, she found herself paying close attention to how people spoke around her. After a while, she began to notice that younger people in the community were mixing the languages of Walpuri, English, and Australian Creole in a way that seemed especially unique. And after a while, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll pay more attention to this. This seems interesting. And then I realized they were mixing them in every sentence, which I hadn't really noticed earlier. And I thought, oh, gosh, this is really its own way of speaking. These young people had begun mixing languages in a way that was different. Light Walpuri was born the way most languages are born, out of a messy, slow, unintentional process that happens naturally when different cultures and languages come into contact. Here's Carmel talking to a light Walpuri speaker named Sinzi. If you listen close, you can hear the blend of light Walpuri in English. What are the times when you speak Lajamanu style? Sometimes I speak Walpuri when my family comes. Mm-hmm. You are? 
Even though Light Walpuri seems new and young, it's actually been a long time in the making. It goes way back, but we'll start with the history of British colonization in Australia. So when Australia was first colonized by the British, indigenous people were living everywhere in Australia. Those indigenous folks spoke a diverse range of languages, including Walpuri. When the British showed up, they, of course, only spoke English. So there was at first no common language between the indigenous communities and the colonizers. Generally, the, the English speakers didn't try very hard to learn the indigenous languages. The responsibility seemed to be on the indigenous language speakers to do most of the, the work of getting communication happening. So they learned quite a lot of words of English. But when you're learning a language uh, in a real hurry, you don't need to learn the whole language. You just need to learn enough to get by uh, in for whatever it is that you're doing at that moment. That meant that the indigenous communities were mostly learning the bits of English that were meaningful to their interactions with the British. Unfortunately, it was often vocabulary related to the labor they were forced to perform for the colonizers. And so what, what people uh, do in a situation like that is learn some words and use the grammars that they've already got. In other words, they might use English words, but slotted into the grammar of their indigenous language. And so that very early uh, way of communicating that's not yet a fully formed systematic language, but is a new way of communicating, that's a pidgin. A pidgin. It's not quite a full language because it hasn't developed consistent rules and structures, but it's perhaps a step in the direction of a new language. So a pidgin is this kind of additional way of just getting by with speakers whose languages you don't know yet, like you all don't know each other's languages yet. And with no set rules or structures, pigeons are constantly shape-shifting, but can eventually start to develop a system of rules. And then, when a, when a way of speaking is being used all the time um, with your own group, with other groups, it's got very complicated, it's got rules, it's got a lot of vocabulary, then it's a real language, and that's what a Creole is. A Creole is a whole brand new language with patterns and rules and structure. You might hear the word Creole and think of the language spoken by certain communities in Louisiana, but Creole actually refers to a whole linguistic category with various unique languages falling within it. For example, Carmel is referencing Australian Creole here. To understand why Light Walpuri sounds the way it does, you need to look at the parent language, Walpuri, and the community it's spoken in. This community is quite remote from the other communities, uh, not by choice. This community came about because the government relocated people from the other communities to here. And that's an important part of the story of Light Walpuri, actually, that this group of people were separated from the other Walpuri communities, not by their own choice, but they were forced to do that. And they have since created a life here. Today, strong Walpuri speakers can speak their native Walpuri, Australian Creole, and English. Sometimes they're spoken separately under specific circumstances. But sometimes these languages get used all at once. Firstly, adults were speaking in a way to very young children where they combined Walpuri with English and Creole. That's Australian Creole again. Those children that were hearing that pattern very consistently, as they 
grew up, like when I'm when they were say three or four or five years old, and this is going back about 40 years now, they just started to speak in the way that combined the languages very systematically. Similar to Nicaraguan Sign Language, the oldest generation of light Walpuri speakers weren't quite as systematic with the way they used the language. They were creating it on the fly. But the younger generations really cemented a lot of the patterns and systems of the language. And what's really cool about this pattern is that the way it combines the languages is that it takes uh, verbs, action words, from English and Creole, and then it takes nouns or words for names of things and the word endings that go on nouns from Walpuri so that you've got not just words that combine in a very patterned way but also the grammatical structures from each one combine in a very patterned way. So for example if I wanted to say today I came on the bus in Walpuri I'd say so today I came here, bus on. In light Walpuri, you'd say, Jalangu wim kam mandala. So the word for today, Jalangu, is the same, and on the bus is the same. But in light Walpuri, you'd say, wim kam, which takes come from English and Creole, and then there's the new construction, we from English, you and I, you know, and the next part, the m mm on it, is part of the new construction. So, jalangu wim kam mandala versus jalangu na yano no mandala. At the core of so many great language innovations, children being allowed to experiment and play with language. And then they also brought in just some very small changes that children might often make when they're, when they're learning their first languages anywhere in the world. But instead of changing back again to the way adults speak, these changes stayed around. So now those changes are the way of speaking Light Walpuri. Light Walpuri doesn't need to exist, per se, in the way that NSL did. The young speakers had three languages already to choose from, which many of them spoke. But the fact is that they didn't pick one of those existing languages because they were already growing up differently from their parents and grandparents. They weren't the same as the monolingual English Australians or the same as the older Walpuri and Creole speakers. The culture they were surrounded by was a combination of many elements, and so their communication system reflects that. In short, Light Walpuri shows the kind of world its speakers live in. And importantly, the children weren't stopped from creating. They did it regularly until it became the language they spoke within their generation. They sort of thought, we like our way of talking, like this is our way of talking. And, and of course, we know they do speak strong Walpri as well, right? So it's not to the exclusion of strong Walpri, but it's just like our own special way of talking. In our increasingly globalised society, there's a lot of pressure to conform to English or other international languages. Not only this, but throughout Australia's history, Indigenous communities have been punished for speaking their native languages by English-speaking colonizers. As of 2020, 90% of Indigenous Australian languages are endangered. But the unintentional creation of Light Walpuri is a story of growth and linguistic agency in Indigenous communities. The emergence of a new language can sometimes be a story of human resilience. 
Any language is going to keep evolving simply because of the human desire for unique expression. David J. Peterson again. And it's not just it's not just teenagers too. This is why we have poets and why we have authors and why when you're reading a really good book, you might see a turn of phrase you've never seen before. This is why Shakespeare invented a bunch of new words that nevertheless kind of made sense within the context of English. We have this drive inside us to be unique and individual, but we want to be understood. And that's why we all speak languages rather than each of us just saying whatever word comes into our head. And that's why language is the great compromise it is. It's not that languages need to succeed or have a goal. If they communicate with others, they're succeeding. If they're continuing to grow and evolve and change, they're doing well. But what happens when there's no chance for the compromise that David spoke of? What happens when certain people decide that there's no room for linguistic diversity in a given place? When languages disappear or are forced to disappear? Languages don't die like individual animals die. Languages die like species die. That's on part two of our Language Lifecycle series. Radiolingo is an original podcast from Duolingo and Crooked Media. I'm Amadel Yakbert, your host, writer, and producer. From Crooked Media, executive producers are Sandy Gerard and Katie Long. From Duolingo, executive producers are Laura Maycumber and Timothy Shea. This episode was produced and co-written by Mary Knopf and story edited by Lacey Roberts. Our associate producer and fact checker is Brian Semmel. Our theme and original music is by Carly Bond, with mixing, sound design, and additional music by Hannes Brown. Additional research and production support from Crooked Media's Ari Schwartz and Duolingo's Cindy Blanco, Emily Chu, Alexa Fernandez, and Hope Wilson. Special thanks to Crooked Media's Danielle Jensen and Gabriella Leverett, and Duolingo's Michaela Crone, Monica Earle, and Sam Dalsimar for promotional support. (laughs) 